All right. Well, good afternoon, everybody. As always, this is Corey Worden. I'm the administrator for the ASSP Healthcare Practice Specialty, and you're listening to the ASSP Health Beat Podcast. So we appreciate you joining us today. Today, we've got a great episode. Today, we're talking to Doug Rush, who's a just a prolific industrial hygienist and safety professional. He's been doing this for a long time. He's a retired chief master sergeant in the United States Air Force. He's got a, a, a whole a litany of, of degrees and certifications, and we're glad to have him here today. So, um, uh, Chief Rush, short of me, me speaking for you, if you could give our listeners a little bit about yourself, your career, experiences, education, uh, whatever you want to add in, we, we appreciate it. Thank you. Well, hey, Corey, thanks. This is uh, <laughs> a little bit humbling, by the way, doing an interview like this. Usually I'm on the other end of the stick interviewing other people in the workplace and trying to find out what they do and how they do it. Um, but this is a little humbling and um, thanks. I'm, I'm just glad to have the opportunity to talk about this. I think uh, you just asked me to tell you a little bit about myself and I don't want to go through a long history here, but I'm going to try and sum it up as quick as I can. Um, I was uh, grew up in the military, military brat. I joined the United States Air Force when I was 21. Um, reported to a place called the B Shop, and we called that the Bio Environmental Engineering uh, Shop. I did not pick that career field intentionally. In fact, whenever I went in the Air Force, they asked me what I wanted to do, and I said I wanted to climb telephone poles. Uh, they said, hey, we don't have that kind of a career, but we've got this thing called environmental health. And it turned out to be primarily, uh, I took it. Um, it turned out to be primarily um, industrial hygiene related stuff and uh, environmental stuff. We, the Air Force has a separate safety department, but we worked very closely with the safety department. And we worked pretty closely with um, uh, the disaster response departments too, like the one that Corey uh, was associated with and worked with in the Air Force for many years, too. Um, I went to a tech school to learn um, the field in uh, Brooks Air Force Base, Texas. And upon leaving there, I reported to the largest uh, hospital in the United States Air Force called Wolf Hall Medical Center, Center in um, San Antonio, Texas. Um, spent three great years there and the experience in the medical center was just amazing. Um, many of you on this call understand medical centers and you know what goes on there. Uh, it's like a little city um, there. Wilford Hall, when I went there, we went through a huge expansion and um, got to see, you name it, the industrial type uh uh, you don't think about hospitals having an industrial environment, but they do. Um, everything from paint shops to laboratories to at Wilford Hall Medical Center, we had a lot of research going on with test animals, uh, et cetera. It was a great experience, and I managed the largest radiation safety program in the United States Air Force um, and some other pretty nice radiation programs while I was there. Um, from there, I went to a little place called uh, uh, RAF Upper Hayford in England, another hospital. And whenever you're in the Air Force, from the bioenvironmental engineering standpoint, you are associated with the hospitals. 
So you report with, to the hospitals, but your, your span takes in the entire base uh, and all of the bases that it supports. So I went to RAF Upper Hayford and got my first um, opportunity to support aircraft, including a pretty substantial hospital there. And um, learned a lot about flight and uh, learned a lot about how we maintain aircraft. Uh, it was very interesting. Um, all the industrial processes associated with that were very intriguing. Everything from non-destructive inspection to you name it, it was there. Um, then they, I went to a place called McConnell Air Force Base, which is in Kansas, Wichita, Kansas. And they sent me there because I had developed some pretty strong skill sets for um, uh, making things happen where we, and avoiding incidents. Wilford Hall was in, uh, not Wilford Hall, but uh, in uh, McConnell, we were in process of deactivating Titan II missiles. We had 18 of them. There was a city under the ground uh, in 18 locations around Wichita. We took off some nuclear uh, warheads and we took off some, um, um, some uh, pretty dangerous um, uh, fuel that propelled them. And uh, we did that safely. We did that without any incidents, although I responded to quite a few potential incidents and was in the middle of a, uh, at least one very bad incident. Um, and uh, we took care of B-1B aircraft, tankers, F-4s, you name the aircraft. We had a lot of aircraft out there. And then I left there, went to the United States Air Force Reserves for a while, where I attained the rank of, as Corey mentioned, E9, Chief Master Sergeant, uh, which is a pretty neat little rank. Um, and those of you who have been in the military uh, know that. It's very humbling to be associated with that rank um, in, in the military. And it's one of those things that um, it just opens doors. And for an environmental health and safety professional, uh, opening those doors and knocking down uh, boundaries is a lot easier at that rank. Um, anyway, from there, I went to a company called Learjet. It was an aircraft manufacturer in uh, Wichita, Kansas, uh, where I directed the environmental health and safety aspects worldwide. We had two large manufacturing locations, one in um, Tucson and one in Wichita. And uh, then we had, I think it was 13 or it might have been 16 uh, uh, bay, uh, places around the world where Learjet operated out of that I took care of there. And in Wichita, if you've ever been there, Wichita is a very um, um, uh, small community, so to speak. And being an industrial hygienist in that town, I got to be very well known. There was some contractors there who convinced me that I needed to open a business. I did that, opened a business, and with the help of the contractors, um, I became very successful. And um, Wichita started a business there, grew it to have about 40, uh, mostly uh, engineering type people on board uh, and technicians. 
did a lot of work for all the aircraft companies and the major hospitals there, St. Francis, St. Joseph, and them. Um, and the Desert Storm picked me up, took me back to the Air Force for a little while uh, because I was in the reserves. That is a very humbling experience, by the way. Uh, you learn a lot about yourself. Um, and uh, I sold that company in about 2002. Came to uh, Houston, um, was attracted to another company that needs some help. Um, I took over ownership of it, changed its name, and uh, worked there for about nine years and then sold my interest. From there, I went to a few consulting companies because I wanted to see how the large consulting companies did it. Um, I worked for a company called Golder, which if you know Golder, you know a quality company. They are one top-notch EHS company um, and worked for them in Canada for a few years and Terracon here in um, uh, Houston. Um, and then the oil crisis hit us. And so I found myself back in uh, private practice, started up Scopus Consultants, and uh, here I am today. Now, as I've been through so many experiences, uh, I seem to be doing a lot of um, expert witness type work and uh, problems whenever people have problems that they can't quite work out. I've done a lot of asbestos work, uh, Legionella work, um, lots of industrial hygiene uh, in the big factories, and the expert witnesses tended to lean toward the uh, uh, defense uh, side of it. But anyway, I've had a great career, and sorry, Corey, for that long explanation, but I'm sure you can cut where we need to. Are you there? Yep, yep. That was great. That's great information and definitely a lot of awesome experiences there. So I know we talked about, or I should say you had, you had discussed there how you were working in the military, you know, with the, of course, hospitals, which we always say in hospitals, they contain every hazard known to man. Um, and then, of course, you've got the, the military aspects. You, know, you mentioned the Titan II missiles and all the aspects there. So you got nuclear weapons, uh, which, you know, that's, that's a whole whole different level of hazards and, and potential mishaps, uh, thing, you know, broken arrow incidents and whatnot. Um, so over the years, what, what hazards do you think you've dealt with the most? You know, um, for industrial hygienists, one of the big things that we deal with uh, is asbestos. Uh, I've done a lot of work in asbestos. Um, because of an uh, in the mid 80s, the EPA passed a rule uh, for asbestos in schools, which kind of, in my opinion, um, as I was talking to you a little bit earlier, Corey, uh, about um, one of the big changes in environmental health and safety or HSE or however you want to call it. I like to call it HSE. One of the biggest changes in our career field occurred in the mid 80s, and it occurred with asbestos. Uh, the EPA regulated asbestos in schools through the uh, HERA, Asbestos Hazard Emergency Response Act. And as a result of that, uh, what happened was our career field changed. It changed dramatically. 
prior to that, um, we kind of, well, we did stuff that a lot of people never even heard of, you know, from the industrial hygiene standpoint. And after that happened, all of a sudden asbestos was big. People understood, started understanding that there was hazards in the air that they couldn't see. Uh, and, uh, that created a lot of money in their career field. And that money came in, uh, engineers follow money, lawyers follow money, everybody follows money. And um, as a result, we got a lot of engineers in the career field that started looking at the way we did things in the mid eighties. And they said, you know what, this is just not all that um, efficient. Um, and effective sometimes. So they started building new equipment for us and um, uh, processes and programs and things that went directly into the career field and went impacted worker health and safety tremendously. We used those things to make quicker and faster evaluations of uh, things like things like uh, Legionella, which we had just started understanding of it in in the early 70s or mid 70s somewhere thereabouts in some of the largest buildings which you know hospitals have to deal with that every day but we started understanding how to control that stuff um, evaluate it um, you know identify it evaluate it and control those hazards um, so that was uh, to me probably one of the biggest changes in uh, and um, there, and the like I said, asbestos is probably the opening door that led to everything else. You know, all of a sudden we dealt with formaldehyde, we dealt with benzene, all the carcinogens you can think of, and I've been blessed to have dealt with many of them. And um, we just developed programs, many of which we use today. And definitely. Yeah, it's interesting how that works out, isn't it? You know, we, you, you, these hazards we work with, you know, and then you kind of realize how all the programs are interrelated. Like in my case, you know, the earliest things that I learned about with the, in the Air Force were chemical, biological, you know, radiological and nuclear, nuclear threats or hazards. And um, then, of course, you got explosives that are kind of, mixed in there if you're talking about things like uh, radiological dispersal devices or dirty bombs and nuclear devices and things of that nature. So, um, you know, you talk about that, then it becomes a matter of, uh, you know, uh, contamination avoidance, contamination prevention, contamination control, respiratory protection, PPE, decontamination, disinfection. And then you realize how that applies. You know, you're talking about chemical agents and biological, which means anthrax, anthrax the pathogen. And what we're dealing with now, COVID-19 is a pathogen, you know, it's just, it's air, air transmitted as opposed to a, you know, suspicious white powder. So it, it's all, you know, it's interesting how it's all related, but, um, so as you're doing that, um, how do you feel like, uh, your, your air force experience has, has benefited your, your career since then? Uh, tremendously. I mean, the air force provided me the, uh, the basis, and I don't know how many people are familiar with the military, but the Air Force has got a tremendous uh, system 
that we operate in. It's called the uh, uh, Air Force uh, Occupational Safety and Health uh, Management System, and it's AFOSH is what we call it. Some It's comparable to what uh, some people practice today, which is the VPP, Voluntary Protection Program, which is an OSHA program, and it's probably more in line with some of the um, ISO, uh, let's see, 45,001, uh, management systems. What the Air Force really taught me was you had to have a system and um, a system in everything. And you know, number one, you needed to follow the Plan Do Check Act, PDCA Act, where you got, you have to plan what it is you're doing. That's the very first thing that, that you have to do. Then you have to implement it according to the plan. You have to check it to make sure everything is going the way that you had planned it to go um, uh, and reevaluate it and change it if you need to um, and uh, and then act just change make those changes and continually make that process if you're if you know what I'm talking about with PDCA you know exactly what a system is and the Air Force had some great systems out there um, for doing that uh, I mean I I I cannot overemphasize a plan. I've been into many, you know, I've been into thousands of workplaces. Some of them are very, very good and very well managed. But those that are very well managed have got a system. They might call it their own system. Um, and I don't want to name any companies because many, many of the companies I work for have systems. But a lot of the companies I work for, even the largest companies, don't have a system and those companies that don't have a system are if they have a broken system you end up with deaths you know in the last uh, five or six years I've been to two major incidences um, one of them involved uh, the death of four people from suffocation um, in a large chemical refinery uh, it was uh, uh, and pesticides here in Houston and uh, killed four people. It was a large company that their system had broke. And it was very obvious when we got in there. And then I went to another one up in Louisiana that killed four people through an explosion where they didn't understand the uh, how hydrogen was in this particular case was being evolved and caused a ma major um, explosion. And <laughs> Uh, they didn't have a system for identifying that. Uh, the uh, emphasis of that program was to try and, number one, help them understand what happened, and then number two, to help them put together a system. Um, that, in our career field, if you've been involved in an injury, no matter how slight or something that unfortunately causes a fatality it's a real eye-opener um, as to how important systems are and one thing you understand you come to understand really quickly is a lot of times that those um, those incidences are typically caused by one-off uh, things where uh, you're at the end of a shift uh, and you had been maybe moving something like this is some of the incidents I've, I've been involved in where uh, you're at the end of a shift. Um, you're, you're moving something heavy 
your contractor has gone home, but something needed to be moved after they went home and the maintenance department said, we can move it. And they didn't go through a plan. They didn't follow their system. And whenever they do that, something breaks, someone gets killed, um, buried or something. And um, uh, so I've kind of lost track, Corey, what you asked, but to me, the most important thing that we can do in our plans and particularly in hospitals is to have a comprehensive system you know, that involves everybody from the top to the bottom and from the bottom to the top. And uh, everybody has to be involved. Corey? Definitely, definitely. Right, and find the, the mute button. I always mute it to make sure that I don't um, make any extra noise while you're while you're speaking. But yeah, definitely. Um, I totally agree. The system is just imperative, and and that's great because that that all aligns with everything else that we work on. You know, in terms of safety management systems and the full cycle of you know hazard analysis, risk assessment, hazard control, communication, leading indicators, lagging indicators incident analysis. And, and like you said, you know, all those things, you know, if not done with diligence can, can lead to fatalities, you know, so the, the prevention is just so important. So speaking of prevention, I know you mentioned asbestos and you mentioned um, radiation and of course, uh, you, you know, chemicals and uh, nuclear agents or nuclear uh, devices, all different kinds of things there. Uh, so what are some of the some of the best practices that you've seen, like some of the greatest hits as far as hazard control programs and and things that that you always um, you've kind of carried with you over the years? Uh, probably simple programs that we practice every day, lockout, tagout, those kind of things save lives from electrical hazards, you know, and personal protective equipment programs, just understanding and helping workers. Uh, not just workers, but everybody from the leadership on down you know, understand the importance of what personal protective equipment is, how it's used. I went into a facility one time many years ago that uh, made adhesives. And um, the uh, they had a spill. Um, I don't remember what the chemical was, but the responders that showed up on site didn't have enough good information as to what they were dealing with. And um, this particular chemical was one that would go right through uh, some of the PPE that was being worn and uh, knocked out a bunch of um, responders. So uh, just having a good emergency response program in a company is, uh, probably one of the the pinnacle programs that every good HSE program has to have on on site. I've responded to many emergency responses and um, and uh, have been part of uh, many of them, from big tank spills to trucks turning over to you name it. Been involved with a lot of them and. It is so important for us in our facilities to understand what sorts of chemicals that we have in that facility 
to enable and tell the responders what they're dealing with. Um, I was in an electron um, microscopy laboratory one time and they had a um, chemical called uh, osmium tetroxide, I think it was. It's a pretty bad um, respiratory uh, hazard. And uh, one of the responders responded to it, didn't know what they were dealing with and breathed it right in. Um, so it's important, I think, in a hospital setting for us to be able to, we, ha we have a lot of complex chemicals and things being used, sometimes in small quantities, but sometimes in large quantities um, that we need to be able to tell people about. Um, and we have a lot of chemicals that can become, uh, can change their um, uh, form um, or become reactive uh, once they get old and that kind of thing. Like um, I was cleaning out a laboratory one time at Wilford Hall Medical Center and we had, um, a, it was an abandoned lab and we came across uh, a bunch of petric oxide, uh, petric acid, excuse me. And um, uh, I saw the bottles. I wasn't sure what it was. No one else knew. I started looking it up and I realized it was could be very explosive if it was dried out. Well, sure enough, it was all dried out. We had about 15 or 20 bottles of this stuff. So I called in the emergency, uh, what we call them, the EOD, uh, Explosive Ordnance People. They came out with big padded boxes and big personal protective equipment, collected that those chemicals up, took them out to a uh, large field and uh, ignited them. And man, uh, you talk about one big, beautiful um, fireball. But those are the things that the laboratory, whenever they left that laboratory, if they would have had a plan, they would have realized that they needed to make assurance or that those chemicals never got into that kind of a state. And then as health and safety people, we need to understand what's in those um, labs and, and those kinds of places that in small or large quantities that can potentially hurt somebody down the line. Um, and those are just the visible hazards in, in a, in a medical facility that we see every day. There's so many invisible hazards that we see in hospital facilities where we are treating patients with a chemical that um, uh, may be carcinogenic. And, and the people who are treating those people can breathe those in or absorb them through their skins, uh, skin. Um, we just have to be aware of those kind of things and it, that awareness comes through a system. Uh, I can't emphasize the importance of a system more than, than I just have. And infection control needs to be involved in those systems. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. You know, the that's been a big part of everything we've worked on for the last many years is making sure that everybody understands the different hazards, including, like you said, those that are invisible, but, you know, very severe, you know, very severe high risks, um, whether it's a 
pathogen or you know, disease exposure or whether it's hazardous hazardous drugs. Um, a lot of different factors there. So that's great, great input. Um, and I, I do, I also appreciate what you said there as far as the, the explosive hazards is a lot of times people don't, you know, if something doesn't look like an explosive, they might not realize that it's an explosive hazard. You know, people will say it doesn't look, it doesn't look like a hand grenade, you know, but in reality, you're talking about um, a chemical that's got a, you know, a defined upper and lower explosive level or limit. And, you know, you've got these different things that in the um, in the right or wrong conditions, they, they can very well explode and cause a lot of damage. Um, we had a situation like that when I was in the service as well, where we had a, a bunker full of these were actually munitions. They were straight up explosives, not chemicals, but um, they had all been past their expiration date. And so we went out with the with the EOD team on the base uh, explosive ordnance disposal team and. We went out to the firing range, and this is on Guam, so it's way out in the jungle. You know, they had a clearing, and it was down in this kind of like a canyon almost, so it was very safe. So we packed in all the explosives, and they rigged it onto a time fuse, and then we went, a, you know, a good 300 feet away um, behind a like a concrete pillbox. Uh, this is on Guam, so I think the concrete pillbox was actually there since World War II. Um, during the you know, the invasion, the Marines invading the island, and um, they, they, like you said, they blew that thing. Goodness, it was uh, an explosion like I've never seen. I have it on video somewhere, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I'll see if I can send it to you. But um, yeah, all those things, very interesting, unique situations, and just knowing the hazards and knowing how they manifest is just so important. <clears throat> so speaking of that, you know, you talked about these different situations and different hazards and lessons learned. Uh, so if you're talking about lessons learned, so let's say that somebody was coming out of, uh, let's say college or, or coming out of the military or, or coming even out of high school and they wanted to go into, into safety or industrial hygiene or even emergency management or infection prevention or whatnot. What, what kind of advice would you give them as far as um, education, credentials, professional development, what would you let them, what would you tell them? Well, for a technician coming out, uh, and there, there is a lot of people in our career field that are not degreed and, and that's not a problem. I mean, um, there are many things that um, a non-degreed person can do in our career field, um, as was proof with me in the United States Air Force. I, initially, I did not have a degree either. But uh, as long as those people are working for somebody who understands what they're, they are doing um, and is a good instructor, there's not a problem. Uh, and there's plenty of education out there, resources that a good company can put people through um, to uh, teach them. Or you can get yourself. Many colleges are teaching a lot of really good classes nowadays. Uh, from everything from biological to industrial hygiene issues and lots of substance specific um, uh, things like hydrogen sulfide, those kinds of things. There's many training programs out there from a lot of that. So if somebody's coming out of high school and they want to get involved in it, they're probably going to need to start approaching uh, more than likely, it's going to be consulting companies um, who can use 
the, uh, the, that sort of labor initially uh, where they can put them into things that uh, where they just need a labor source to go do things with good instruction. But you need to research that company and, and um, interview them as much as or more than they interview you. Um, they're, the one thing they're going to want to know is what you can do for them. So you need to have developed a resume that says um, your past experiences, what you've done in high school, what you've done in your work career, the whole nine yards that will fit into what they do and start educating them. But you also need to um, uh, find out how they're, they're, they're going to use you and make sure it fits your needs. The same thing with a person coming out with a degree. And the degree can be just about anything, but typically some of the sciences are the best degrees, uh, anything from chemistry to uh, engineering. Um, those are really good foundations for what we do um, out here as an industrial hygiene and our safety. Uh, great foundations. One of the things I think that is coming to our career field, and we're going to see a lot of it in the near future, and probably we'll see people entering the career field, uh, is going to be people who have an understanding of um, the psychology of people. Um, we, we just watched uh, an Olympian um, leave the floor because she felt endangered um, from an event that she was going to do. Um, initially, when I heard that, I was probably like most people. I didn't understand it. But as I sat back and, and thought about it, she left that because she understood her personal safety. And not only her personal safety, if she got into an accident, some of the other the safety of other individuals that might be around her that might be involved in trying to take care of her. Um, that happens all the time. And I don't think we understand that as well as we probably should. Um, one, uh, just, uh, uh, I think it was in the, uh, uh, mid nineties. Um, I was involved in an aircraft accident where a, uh, F, uh, 16, I think it was. Uh, the pilot, as far as we could tell, didn't have a good mental state of mind, uh, which is unusual in the Air Force because you you guard against that. But um, he turned an airplane over and he was only about 30 or 40 feet off the ground and uh, ejected. You know, and at the end of it, we found out it was probably associated with a mental condition that he was developing. And I think that that's true for many of the people we work with and for um, in our career fields, particularly in healthcare, where you have uh, nurses and doctors and technicians that um, have all kinds of issues on their mind, um, not just their own work, but um, Things out, you know, in their home, things in, uh, they may be going to school, all kinds of things. And we just need to come to an increased awareness of how those things impact the work 
force. And I think those things, I think the way we are able to effectively monitor that is through near miss programs, which many people in hospitals have. But if you don't have a near miss program right now, you need one, period. Uh, it's just one of those things that it raises the awareness of uh, safety and health in the uh, workforce. And it also um, empowers um, people in our workforce to understand things like what our Olympian did. This, I'm fixing to do something, I'm about ready to do something that could hurt me and uh, or somebody else. And uh, they understand that and understand what kind of actions that they can take to, um, you know, salvage a otherwise bad situation from ever happening. But near-miss programs, I'm convinced, raise the awareness um, in our workforce. Corey, I'm so sorry for talking so much, but I get excited about this stuff. Oh, it's great. We appreciate it. That's, that's one of the things that's, that's so cool about the podcast is hearing everybody's experiences and, and input and perceptions and all, everybody can learn from it. So it's fantastic. Um, and, and I totally agree. Uh, you know, near miss and you know, good catch programs are absolutely just imperative. And, um, you know, that, that cultural understanding that it's okay to say when something is unsafe, you know, it, it so that people don't feel like there's some kind of false obligation to push through and end up either putting themselves or or other people or both in danger. Um, I, I know that. I mean, there's a million examples. I, I remember the first time I felt that way was I was actually in the Air Force. I was younger, and we were doing some training. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in the Silver Flag training site. We were we were out there basically playing war games. And um, this was in Okinawa. And they had these big hills. And we were using all-terrain vehicles to, you know, traverse these hills. And we were going up there to put detection equipment out. We were running a detection, detection grid for seaburn threats, um, chemical detectors. And um, I realized when I was at the top of that hill, I had... I had gotten up to the top and I thought, okay, if I turn around and go down this hill, there's a decent chance I'm going to turn this ATV over and I'm going to hurt myself. And so I just got off and turned it off and kind of walked it down. And I got, you know, made fun of for the rest of the night. Um, you know, you get a bunch of, you know, a bunch of airmen, you know, and they're, you know, young, young people, they were, you know, gave me a hard time about it. But I said, well, the, the alternative is I go ahead and try to do it and end up hurting myself, breaking the equipment. And that's a lot worse for everybody, you know, than them making fun yeah. of me. So it's just one of those things. Um, and that's just one example. Of course, it gets way more severe when you're talking about, like you said, with hazmats and um, radiation and all these different factors that exist in every hospital, you know, and, and not only that, but infectious diseases, like you said, you know, you've got doctors, you've got nurses, you've got, Every, everybody in the healthcare setting and there's a potential for exposure and all it takes is to forget something like, you know, when you're going into a potentially infectious area and, you know, to put on the respirator and the PPE, 
because not only can somebody get exposed, but then you track those those same germs back into the, you know, back onto the clinical unit or the nursing station or whatever, then then it can either go to another employee or it can go to another patient and you've got a really awful situation. There, there's been countless cases of like, you know, MRSA or um, all different kinds of, you know, germs that have gotten spread that way. So the, the lesson learned are endless and they, you know, come from those near mesh reports and, and unfortunately the incident reports. Uh, but um, great perception, great, great input. Um, the, the last thing I always ask everybody, and this is kind of like my million dollar question. One day I'm going to write an article and I'm going to, you know, summarize everybody's answer to this question. Uh, so if you had a magic wand, so if you could, if you could change something about either the, the career field or about safety cultures and organizations or about OSHA or CDC, NIOSH or the EPA or anything that we deal with, if you can wave that magic wand and change something, what would that be? Well, I got an answer for that. And, uh, but before I do that, I want to mention one other thing that I haven't mentioned throughout here. Disaster response inside of a hospital is probably one of the most overlooked things that you think you know. Um, I was in one major hospital in Wichita one time. I just got through teaching um, the uh, many of the executives and the safety team about uh, has map response and how to do it, yada, yada, yada. And lo and behold, the next day, they had a big, I was in the hospital talking to uh, the safety guy, and uh, they had a, a a 55 gallon drum of uh, acid uh, develop a hole in the laundry. Um, so they thought they knew what they were doing and uh, they didn't, they weren't ready for it. They, uh, but they, I walked with them and helped them a little bit as this thing progressed and people who had been freshly trained walked in this acid with a paper suit over rubber boots. Um, it was just a fiasco um, there. So what I'm trying to get at is any program that you have in a hospital or anywhere else, practice it, practice it, practice it before you do it. And then if you got to do it and you don't know what to do, back off, look at it, evaluate it, call somebody who understands. Uh, what to do on that particular case. It ended up lasting all night. And I ended up calling out team in to help us mop up this acid, but it could have been a lot da more dangerous than that. Concerning the, the, the magic question that you're talking about, in my opinion, and I tell this to uh, people at the ABIH, uh, the American Board of Industrial Hygiene, uh, on more than one occasion, is we have got to get more people into industrial hygiene in this country. For some reason, industrial hygiene is that getting through the certification test is hard. Um, many people uh, take the test many times and sometimes even just give up. There aren't very many 
CIHs that have been developed. I think that the certification started in the early 70s. Uh, they go on a numerical sequence of the given the numbers out by the order in which they got there. I think right now we're only up to like somewhere around 12 or 13,000. So that's been since the 70s. Many of those people are gone. Probably at least half of them don't practice anymore. Um, and then, so if you got six or 7,000 of them left, you suddenly, uh, many of them are, are working in um, pro areas where they never practice the hygiene. They might be a teacher or an instructor, or they might be at an elevated level of management. And as a result, they sometimes don't get involved um, in the everyday working of an industrial hygiene program. To me, that particular skill set is very much so needed um, out there. Um, what I'm saying is there's probably only um, 3,000 of them that we can actually call upon to use uh, around the world. And so in the United States, we probably only have a couple of thousand. And I don't know the numbers exact, I'm just guessing, but what I'm saying here is if a PhD or a doctor or an engineer goes to take that test and he can't pass that test, it hurts the field. And where we could otherwise have a lot of really good people, engineers, um, and those kinds of people that join the industrial hygiene field and take that practice and expand it, into safety and environmental and a whole nine yards. So I, I went way and above what you asked there, Corey, but to me, I think the country needs more um, industrial hygienists. The country needs more certified safety professionals. And, and that's people who understand how to manage systems. Um, so with that, um, that's kind of where I'm at. That's great. Great input. I, I agree. There's, I, I agree with that. I'm the same way where I, I try to encourage people to continue that development and get into the, you know, the, the certification level. Um, I've always been a big advocate of <clears throat> certified safety health manager uh, which is now it used to be ishm but now it's through the um, uh, institute for hazardous materials management and then the, of course the csp um, and then the the cih which uh, I, I don't i don't have a cih myself but i'm working on that's that's on my list <laughs> I, I went ahead and did the my, my doctorate program first but i'm going to do the cih um, and then yeah i always try to encourage and i like you said, you know, we want to develop people that understand the, the, the whole picture as far as how to develop the system, how to do the hazard analysis, how to do the gap assessment, put the controls in place, you know, beyond beyond the minimum regulations. You know, it's it just, yeah, so important to continue to develop the, the field so that, you know, one day, um, well, I always joke and say, that, you know, yeah, I'm probably never going to be able to retire, but, uh, you know, one, one day when I do retire, you know, there'll be somebody that can come up and 
do all of this. Um, so I'm, I'm always actively trying to trying to help help people develop those skills myself. I, I totally agree with you. And and that's also we why we appreciate you being here, you know, and doing the webinars that you do and all the things that you, you do in, in addition to your your consulting job because you know that that's all above and beyond and um it, it helps helps everybody you know helps people learn help, encourages people and it gets people on that track so it's it's certainly fantastic uh, same way you did i'm sure you know when you were in the military i'm sure that you worked with the you know the i forget what they call it the first four you know the different professional development groups that to, to you know get get young airmen up into the nco ranks and all that mm-hmm. um, so that's all great but, yeah um, me i think something like that yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. ALS. Yeah, definitely. Airman Leadership School. Yeah, most definitely. But, um, well, heck, Chief, we, we sure appreciate you being here today. It's been a great conversation. And uh, for everybody listening, if you haven't heard it, uh, Chief Rush, Doug Rush, he did a, did a webinar for us for the ASSB Healthcare Practice Specialty back in, um, I believe it was April. Um, it was him and, and Dr. Seamus Coran. They were talking about air filtration and air circulation in, in hospitals and healthcare environments, and especially about disease exposure prevention. So that's fantastic. You can find that on our ASSP communities. The replay is up there. So definitely check that out. And then otherwise, check out the other podcasts. We've got our anchor.fm slash ASSP dash HCPS dash healthbeat. And you can find on there we have 21 episodes and then we're going to be posting a handful more uh, in addition to this great episode we're going to also have um, we have a great interview with uh, Kelly Lombardo who was a master instructor in the military and then also a subject matter expert on education so she's talking about training and communication as related to safety and then we've got an interview with um, uh, Bryce Griffler who's an ASSP leader over in the emerging professionals we're talking about diversity and inclusion and we've also got our series our six-part series with all the practice specialty leaders so we're talking to all the several different practice specialties including industrial hygiene and ergonomics and the women in safety excellence and the blacks in safety excellence and public sector practice specialty and also the environmental practice specialty so definitely check that out but uh with all that being said today um We'll go ahead and wrap it up. But um, Chief, you have anything you want to add before we before we tie it up today? No, Corey. But I just want to tell you, thanks. Uh, this has been um, an exercise where you kind of think a little bit about what you've done before, and and also getting to know you is um, you uh, care a lot about what you do, um, and uh, personally. I always tell people fly with eagles. You probably are an eagle um, in this field, and um, I intend to get to know you better in the future. Um, so thanks, thanks for bringing this awareness um, out there. Thank you. I appreciate you being here. And uh, yeah, speaking of which, I just saw your name pop up yesterday on the um, the. ASSP Gulf Coast chapter, the uh, Veterans Day meeting that's coming up. Yeah. So it looks like you're a uh, you're you're organizing. I'll I'll actually be doing a presentation there. 
Oh, well, yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. It, that's a brand new deal we're trying to do, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing how it develops. And uh, I think it'll it might be a little slow this year, but I bet you we turn that puppy around, and uh, we'll have a lot of participation over the next few years. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah, Rex and. And Kerry had had emailed me about a week ago, and so we we coordinated. I'm gonna I'm gonna do my my after action review of the COVID-19 response. So wow. I'm I'm excited about that. I always like talking to the talking with with the <laughs> with the ASSP Gulf Coast chapter. Is that gonna be at the general meeting it on November? The, um, it's over at the at the Marriott over by yes, Hobby Airport. Yep. On November 11th? Yes, sir. Yep, so you're going to be the lunchtime speaker? Yes, sir, I believe so. Good, I'll see you then. I think I'll it's it. Is it noon? Excuse me? Cool. Oh, I said it's at noon? Yeah, on November 11th? Yes, and that's the day. November 11th is Veterans Day, so that's the day we're going to initiate the... Uh, military thing <laughs> a little bit early but yeah. uh, uh, it'll be a, we're going to do it in conjunction with that meeting so looking forward to that yeah that's, that's fantastic I'm I appreciate the invitation so yeah for everybody listening if you're going to be in Houston Texas on November 11th um, at uh, 10 30 in the morning central time Come by the Marriott over by Hobby Airport and check out the ASSP Gulf Coast chapter. They're going to be doing a, doing a meeting and a Veterans Day ceremony. So it's going to be great. We hope we can see you there. Cool. But, um, yeah, with that being said, we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap it up today. But uh, we'll definitely talk to everybody real soon. I hope you all have a great day. Thank you, sir.